Hello, Health Affairs listeners. I wanted to take a brief moment to talk about the Health Affairs Insider Program. Insiders get exclusive insights and access into the sharpest minds in healthcare research through our virtual events and newsletter programs. To celebrate our second year of running our Insider Program, enjoy $40 off of an Insider membership with the discount code INSIDER at 2 at checkout. In 2024, we secured a suite of health policy experts to unpack the uh, most pressing developments in healthcare with specialized newsletters on antitrust, drug pricing, uh, health policy reform and developments, healthcare spending and prices, and health equity. Uh, Make sure you check those out. Check the show notes and use discount code INSIDER at 2 to become a member today. Hello, and welcome to A Health Policy. The number of pharmacies from 2009 to 2015 have grown in most cities, actually. Not all, but most. But we're still seeing that about 12% of pharmacies in operation from 2009 to 2014 closed by 2015. I'm your host, Alan Weil. Pharmacies are an essential part of the healthcare system and the communities they serve. Many of us think of pharmacies primarily as places to obtain prescription medications, But pharmacists are highly trained clinicians who offer other important services as well. Now, while the overall number of pharmacies has actually increased gradually in recent years, research shows inequitable distribution of pharmacies and pharmacy closures. Historically, much of the focus on pharmacy access was on rural areas, but people living in urban areas can face access challenges as well. Access barriers to pharmacy services in cities is the focus of today's health policy. I'm joined by Jenny Guatamus, a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Southern California School of Pharmacy. In a paper published in the May 2021 issue of Health Affairs, Dr. Guatamus and co-authors investigate accessibility of pharmacies by neighborhood racial and ethnic composition in large U.S. cities from 2007 to 2015. They found fewer pharmacies located in predominantly Black neighborhoods and predominantly Hispanic or Latino neighborhoods than in neighborhoods with a majority of white residents or where the people who live there are racially and ethnically diverse. We'll dig deeper into these findings in our discussion. Dr. Guatamuz, welcome to the program. Thank you, Alan. I'm happy to be here. So let's just start with the role pharmacies and pharmacists play in the healthcare delivery system. Talk to us for a moment about that. So pharmacies, traditionally, if you think of your local pharmacy, you think about picking up your over-the-counter medications for a whole host of everyday conditions, or picking up the medication that your doctor sent over for your chronic conditions, or maybe even talking to your pharmacist about what you're taking to manage the many medications that people take over as they age in the States. Um, But increasingly, pharmacies are used as a place to provide convenient healthcare, especially to address some of the most pressing healthcare issues. Um, For example, the dispensing of naloxone, the prescribing of certain medications, about a dozen now allow for pharmacists to prescribe contraceptives. But it was really the COVID-19 pandemic, which really has brought the importance of pharmacies to the forefront, as the federal government has partnered with pharmacy chains to uh, provide COVID-19 testing and later vaccinations. In fact, it's only growing. As of August, HHS authorized all state licensed pharmacists and pharmacy interns to order and administer childhood vaccinations and COVID-19 vaccinations for everyone over the age of three, really bringing um, the importance of pharmacies for everyday health care to the forefront. 
Yeah, I remember actually getting my flu shot at uh, the local pharmacy even before the COVID epidemic. So the sense of uh, the place that a pharmacist can play in healthcare delivery uh, is has been expanding. But pharmacies are under a fair amount of financial pressure. It's a tough business model. What What are some of the sources of that financial pressure? Yeah, I mean, it really comes down to reimbursement rates, doesn't it? So low reimbursement rates have been been cited as the underlying cause of pharmacy closures, especially as pharmacy benefit managers have proliferated throughout the industry. Our own work has actually shown that pharmacies um, that primarily serve publicly insured populations are at increased risk of closure because of lower reimbursement rates from Medicare and Medicaid. Um, And another added pressure that has been increasing is the use of preferred pharmacy networks. And this is where insurers encourage their beneficiaries to use a single store or a pharmacy home in order to increase adherence and reduce their own costs as insurers. And they do this by providing lower to no cost sharing at these pharmacies. But that generally excludes a lot of the local pharmacies and the independent pharmacies, barring them from accessing the patient pool. So there's this differential access to patients um, across the types of pharmacies, especially those that are located in Black Latino uh, neighborhoods and independent pharmacies. So you did a great job of explaining the pharmacy networks. I just want to step for a moment back to this issue of reimbursement. Um, My understanding is that typically a pharmacy is paid a dispensing fee. So basically, uh, the the drug comes in, they get uh, uh, a co-payment maybe from the patient, they are reimbursed uh, by the insurer, but then there's some fee on top of it. I gather those fees are can be pretty small. They can be, uh, be very small. And it's actually interesting that you bring that up because you talked about the fact that we're focusing on urban areas. One of the reasons that we're focusing on urban areas is because a lot of states through their Medicaid um, programs provide higher dispensing fees if the pharmacy is located in a rural area or an area with very low dispense, dispensing volumes. But this hasn't been the case for urban areas. So there, because there's more people, it's more dense. It has been argued that those additional fees or dispensing fees that higher reimbursement or dispensing fees are not necessary in these areas, which is simply not true, especially in areas that already have lower pharmacies there. So you really need to protect the ones that exist. Yeah, so your paper uh, talks about pharmacy deserts. You, you, that's a term you've used elsewhere. Uh, talk a little bit about what does it mean to be in a pharmacy desert? It's not just the absence of a pharmacy. It's a little more complicated than that. Yeah, it's not just that a pharmacy is not there. It's really more about geographic accessibility. And what I mean by that is how far do I have to drive or walk or take the bus to to get to my nearest pharmacy. So in terms of methods, the way that we estimated it, and it's very it's borrowed from the food desert literature, is that we we took a block from a, all the census blocks in these 30, the 30 largest cities in the US and measured the mean driving distance through the streets to the nearest pharmacy and aggregated that back up to the tract. And those pharmacy deserts are neighborhoods that are at least one mile or more from the nearest pharmacy on average, or half a mile away from the nearest pharmacy if they are also low income and have low vehicle ownership because these act as barriers, geographic barriers to accessing the nearest pharmacy. So you're trying to capture, uh, again, sort of intuitively in a rural area, the distance is sort of what matters and if you have to go too far. But you're saying distance and accessibility matter in urban areas as well. Um, So you look at 
uh, where there are pharmacy deserts in the largest cities. Uh, why don't you take us through the top level findings from the paper? Where where are the, their disparities in the prevalence of pharmacy deserts? Sure. So what we found was that about a third of all neighborhoods in these 30 largest cities were pharmacy deserts. And this affects about 15 million people. However, the prevalence of deserts varied across cities from less than 10% in cities like New York, NSF, San Francisco, to more than 60% in cities like San, San Antonio, Memphis, and Charlotte. But there's wide disparities in terms of the racial ethnic composition of the neighborhoods. Approximately one-fourth of, of white neighborhoods were considered deserts, for instance, in comparison to nearly 40% of Black and Latino neighborhoods. And just uh, before I let you go further, you define this as majority population in the neighborhood, right? So when you say white neighborhood, you're saying 50% or more. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So you can think of this as predominant predominant racial ethnic composition. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. But going back to, to the disparities, what we found that was really striking was that in all of the 30 cities that we examined, either Black or Latino neighborhoods, often both, were more likely to be deserts than white or diverse neighborhoods. And these disparities were especially large in some of the you know, largest cities in the state. So Chicago, Los Angeles, Boston, Philadelphia, the disparities were often in the double digits in terms of the prevalence of, of pharmacy deserts. Um, and then you also looked at closures. Now, the data you show actually indicate that there's a growth in pharmacies overall. So how do we think about the role of closures? Uh, you mentioned earlier the stress that independent pharmacies are under. Just bring those uh, those topics together for me, if you would. Sure. So, yeah, we did see that there were, you know, the number of pharmacies from 2009 to 2015 have grown um, in most cities, actually. Not all, but most. Um, but we're still seeing that about 12% of pharmacies in operation from 2009 to 2014 closed by 2015. And uh, there were disparities where Black and Latino neighborhoods had constantly higher rates of closure, about 15%, in comparison to white neighborhoods at about 11%. And as expected, neighborhoods that were pharmacy deserts in 2015 had greater rates of closure in the previous years, um, especially Black and Latino neighborhoods. Closures are an interesting concept because even though the number of pharmacies are growing, it's not that you want to disrupt the care that people are getting at their local pharmacies by having a turnover rate of 15% of closures over this time period. Even when new pharmacies do open, they don't really open in neighborhoods without pharmacies. Only 11% of the new pharmacy openings occurred in neighborhoods that didn't have one, Black or Latino neighborhoods that didn't have one previously. So this is a very complicated picture, and you're showing lots of levels of disparity uh, by race and ethnicity. Uh, we'll get into that a little more after we take a short break. Healthcare decision-making affects patients and families, yet their perspectives are not always factored into health policy discussions. Each month, Health Affairs produces personal essays from the front lines of care through our Narrative Matters series. You can now listen to the authors reading their stories on our Narrative Matters podcast. Subscribe wherever you listen. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Jenny Guadamus about availability of pharmacies in urban areas. Uh, one of the things that stood out for me in your study is the relationship between pharmacy deserts and medically underserved areas. Now, that's a designation by the federal government. 
you tend to think of it as a place where there isn't much health care. Um, but you found an, a sort of an imperfect match between these uh, designated areas and pharmacy deserts. Can you say a little more about that finding? Yeah. Um, so to take it a step back, the reason that we decided to look at medically underserved areas, so MUAs, is because there are several federal and state policies in place that have sought to improve access to pharmacies using this designation. But just like you said, it's imperfect when we're trying to look at pharmacy access. So what we found was that about a third of medically underserved areas were also pharmacy deserts. And surprisingly, the disparities are actually bigger in these areas, even though there are policies in place to improve access to pharmacies in, in MUAs. And we could talk about those policies afterwards. Um, actually, but the disparities within MUAs were actually larger, where Black and Latino neighborhoods were more likely to have inadequate access to both primary care and pharmacies. Um, but all of this being said, about two-thirds of pharmacy deserts were not located in MUAs, undermining the efforts to improve pharmacy access if you're focusing on MUAs as a metric of where to put in your effort to improve access to pharmacies. So I find this really interesting. I mean, the MUA designation is about the availability of primary care. And what you've mentioned at the beginning is that uh, pharmacies sort of are part of the primary care ecosystem, and particularly in an area where there's limited access to physician or uh, nurse-based primary care, the pharmacist may be uh, a critical source of that care. If you layer both of these on, you're talking about someone who's really going to have trouble getting any primary care at all. Oh, um, we completely agree with that. And that was the, this is actually one of the most important implications of this study where there's a lot of movement in the health policy space to improve access to essential healthcare services at the pharmacy because there's 65,000 pharmacies in the U.S. Like you would think that this is a great place to expand access to healthcare, And it is, but it might perpetuate or widen disparities if you are not addressing the underlying disparities in access to pharmacies when you're trying to roll out greater provision of care with the pharmacy in mind. Yeah. So like when I think about the advertising I see or the, the minute clinic or other clinics that are being situated inside pharmacies, we're sort of adding riches to riches, right? You've already got a pharmacy and now you expand uh, uh, availability of hours of primary care. If you don't have the pharmacy, you don't have a place where that clinic is going to go. And those communities that fall behind in some sense fall further behind because they don't have either. Yes, of course. And I mean, we don't go into that in this paper that much, but there's a lot of literature, previous literature that has shown that where are those like minute clinics going to pop up? Even if a pharmacy exists, like where are they going to pop up? It's not in 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 a pharmacy in an independent pharmacy. It's going to be in a in a major chain that are disproportionately located in white neighborhoods, not black and Latino neighborhoods. So even if there is a pharmacy in place, the types of pharmacies available in black and Latino neighborhoods are different than those located elsewhere. Yeah, can you say a little bit more about that? About the special role that independent pharmacies play. Yeah, so about 50% of all pharmacies in Black and Latino neighborhoods in, in these large cities um, are independents, in comparison to about 35% of pharmacies in white neighborhoods. So independents play a very special role in providing care for low-income and minority neighborhoods. Um, and we've talked a little bit about this before, but 
we know that independent pharmacies are more likely to close because they are more likely to to serve people that are disproportionately insured by the public payers. So we they have lower reimbursement rates. And they're also more likely to be excluded from their preferred pharmacy network plans, um, leaving them especially vulnerable to closures. So this takes us to the policy implications of your work, and you've sort of teed this up for us. You've talked about network design, and you've talked about uh, payment levels. Um, say a little more about what policies might overcome the way the existing practices uh, are putting pressure on uh, these pharmacies? Our call is to provide higher Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement rates, to use that as a leverage to encourage pharmacies to locate in pharmacy deserts, and to prevent existing pharmacies from, from closing. Um, at the, on the Medicaid side, there's there are programs that already exist like this. So in Illinois, for example, in 2018, it rolled out something called the Critical Pharmacy Access Program, so the CAP program. And what it did was to, it was the first program to not only address lower reimbursement rates in rural areas, but also um, urban areas that were medically underserved. One year after the uh, Illinois CAP program was implemented, only three of the 80 eligible pharmacies participated um, and received supplemental payments. And this might be in part because the CAP program is targeting independent pharmacies and there may be barriers for them to participate and therefore receive supplemental payments. But even if this program was rolled out perfectly and all of these 80 pharmacies that were eligible did participate, the way that it was codified was based on the MUA metric. And we know that two-thirds of pharmacy deserts are not MUAs. So any policy to or regulation or legislation to improve pharmacy access needs to consider a pharmacy shortage definition that is actually targeting neighborhood pharmacy access. And moving beyond Medicaid policies, Medicare Part D uh, regulations actually can be leveraged to improve pharmacy access. So for instance, there's there are regulations where existing regulations that um, Medicare Part D requires plans to meet something called the convenient access standards. And this could also be used to mandate increased reimbursement rates for critical access pharmacies, and more importantly, require broader preferred pharmacy networks. And any of these reforms, both for Medicare um, at the federal level or Medicaid at the state level, is that we need to ensure that independents are not excluded from from any supplemental payments or from preferred pharmacy networks, because there has been increased an increased use of preferred pharmacy networks, not just in Medicare, but also in Medicaid managed care plans. So it sounds like the financial pressures of the healthcare system, which lead to consolidation in lots of parts of healthcare, um, are also playing out here where purchasers are, are trying to squeeze down on payment levels and narrow their networks so they have more leverage. And, and it has that seemingly neutral policy actually seems to have quite disparate effects uh, depending on neighborhood characteristics. And you're suggesting that our policies need to acknowledge that and uh, overcome the challenges that those policies create. As I look at your work, I can't help but ask, uh, what's next in your research agenda? This is really important foundational work. Uh, What's the next question you'd like to be able to answer with data about uh, the distribution of pharmacies? So I think the next step would be to look at pharmacy services. So the provision of services 
within, and we kind of talked on this a little bit that, you know, for instance, there's a rollout with COVID-19 vaccinations. Um, and there's already evidence that there's huge disparities in, in, in vaccination at pharmacies. Um, for instance, most of the partnerships have been at chain pharmacies, uh, so the Walgreens, CVS, Walmarts, but excluding these 50% of independent pharmacies, uh, for the most part, most of the partnerships have been with chain pharmacies. So the provision of pharmacy services to not perpetuate disparities, or so we need to at least see what's going on. And, and that's a really big next step for us. Another thing to look forward to is looking at how pharmacy access has changed in the last um, year. This summer, there were a lot of changes and calls for racial equity. Have things gotten better since this study, which ends in 2015, to the last six years? Um, I think that's the next step as well. Well, Dr. Guatemus, it's been great uh, talking to you and learning about this very important and complex topic. Again, we sort of pass by pharmacies every day and don't necessarily think about the critical role they play in healthcare, but you've opened uh, my eyes to the importance of that role and the fact that we really have access problems uh, in our cities as well as in urban areas. So I appreciate the work you've done and having a chance to talk to you about it. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Podacy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening. <laughs>